Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol voted last night to refer Mark Meadows for criminal contempt of Congress charges. And before the unanimous vote on the former chief of staff of President Donald Trump, Representative Liz Cheney, the ranking Republican on the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection, read a series of damning text messages Meadows received on January 6th. One text Mr. Meadows received said, quote, we are under siege here at the Capitol. Another, quote, they have breached the Capitol. In a third, Mark, protesters are literally storming the Capitol, breaking windows on doors, rushing in. Is Trump going to say something? A fourth, there's an armed standoff at the House chamber door. And another from someone inside the Capitol. We are all helpless. We look at the new evidence made public last night about Meadows' text messages, Meadows' efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And joining me now is Ron Elving, senior editor and correspondent on the Washington desk at NPR News. Ron Elving, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Mina. So first, what happened with former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows? Because I thought he was cooperating, at least partially with the committee, and had handed over some 9,000 documents. Yes, sometimes when people hand over that many documents, they're trying to bury the investigating body, whoever it is, under a mountain of stuff and not necessarily give them what they want. Now, in this particular instance, Meadows and his attorney, over a period of months, offered to be cooperative with the committee up to a point. And they call this a process of accommodation. Well, that went on for some while. And when the committee said, fine, now we'd like to talk to you about this mountain of stuff, plus the fact that you were right there at the president's side while all this was going on on January 6th, you're in an absolutely unique position to answer some of the questions that we have. We'd like you to come in since you're cooperating and answer some questions. And at that point, the attorney for Mr. Meadows and Mr. Meadows decided, no, they were no longer going to cooperate and they were going to assert executive privilege, even though so much had already been revealed, even though he has a book out with a lot of this material, which is certainly going to be publicly available yes. in bookstores. And despite of all of those facts, Mark Meadows said now he had executive privilege and did not want to cooperate. So this we should see as a highly calculated, a highly political decision to refuse to cooperate at this moment. 
I mean, Meadows was a former congressman from North Carolina. He led the Freedom Caucus. He knows the committee process. Yes, he does, and he knows it quite well, and he knows that in addition to it being resistible, if you have an excuse, and in his case, he's exerting executive privilege, and let's say that at the time of January 6th, he certainly was part of the executive branch. He was right outside the Oval Office when he was not inside the Oval Office as the president's chief of staff. So yes, under normal circumstances, he would be covered by executive privilege, except that, apart and aside from these being unusual circumstances, he has already done so many things that would appear to be revelatory and certainly not troubled by the executive privilege. Uh, it does seem odd that he should suddenly rediscover it now. And the other strategy that may well be playing out here is simply the time-honored strategy of delay, 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 hmm. and hope that months down the road, the political situation may have changed. Well, Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney made sure that the contents of the many documents that Meadows submitted were heard by the public. She read aloud text messages, as we played a little bit in the uh, intro there, sent to Meadows, but there were others from the president's son, from Fox News personalities as well. There was one from uh, Donald Trump Jr. that said, we need an Oval Office address. This was to Meadows. He was saying he has to leave now, referring to his father, President Donald Trump. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand. And Laura Ingram sent a plea saying, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home adding that he was destroying his legacy. What does the committee think these messages suggest about Mark Meadows and his role, the White House's role, in sanctioning or encouraging the insurrection? The first thing you have to say is that all of these people whom you might imagine would have had direct access to the president themselves, his son, his eldest son, his uh, his supporters at Fox and, and his supporters elsewhere around the country did not seem to think that they could get through to President Trump except through Mark Meadows, or at least that the best way to get through to President Trump was through Mark Meadows. So with that fact in mind, consider all the people who were involved in planning what happened on January 6th and attempting to coordinate it at least, if not actually coordinating it, we still don't know, with the White House. Now, his, piv his pivotal position in what happened on January 6th was certainly evidence that he had a pivotal position in everything yeah. that happened leading up to January 6th. That much is clear. So I think that's part of the point that Liz Cheney is trying to make here in reading all of those emails, plus, of course, making it absolutely clear that President Trump was being advised by people very close to him, people who were his confidants, people who had his confidence as to the facts of what was happening inside the House chamber, inside the Senate chamber, inside the Capitol in this violent moment. And so any suggestion that uh, all this took him by surprise at some later at some later point is is clearly false. Well, let me see if listeners want to share their thoughts or questions about the criminal contempt charges against former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, what the text messages that uh, Representative Cheney was reading last night say about his involvement. 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. You can also email us, forum at kqbd.com. 
org, or you can reach us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're talking with Ron Elving, senior editor and correspondent on the Washington desk for NPR News. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Now, interestingly, we are also learning a lot more about Mark Meadows with regard to the key role that he has played in attempts by the Trump administration to undermine the 2020 election. It found that he encouraged members of Congress to object to Biden's election and that he pursued baseless allegations of voter fraud in several states. Can you talk about some of the significance of that aspect of things that we're learning and what struck you? Some of the emails that we have already seen that came from members of Congress, uh, in some cases we don't have their names yet, to Mark Meadows on that day suggest that the idea was to void the Electoral College vote from several key states and have Mike Pence, the vice president, simply refuse to count the electoral votes from those states, declare that there was no vote from those states, uh, obviously in total contradiction of the facts, And that that plan had failed, that they tried everything they could and we failed. And these messages to Mark Meadows clearly imply that he was aware of what those plans were, that he was aware of what these members were hoping to do, and that they needed only to allude to them briefly in general terms for him to know exactly what the plan was. Well, Paul writes, as I understand it, executive privilege does not apply if the discussions involve possible criminal activity or official misconduct. Where are we in that legal fight? In that fight, we are right in the middle, right? What we're going to hear is a vote today from the House. We've already had a House vote in the Rules Committee to proceed with this uh, contempt citation. And of course, as we've said, the committee itself, the investigating committee, voted unanimously to do so last night. That was the key moment. Right. And then the full House, the full House, of all Republicans and Democrats will vote on this later today, and it is expected to pass along uh, party lines, and that will refer it to the Justice Department and say, just as you're going after Steve Bannon to try to get him prosecuted for not cooperating, uh, we want you to do that with Mark Meadows as well. Now, Steve Bannon was a largely dishonored figure, kicked out of the White House back in 2017, uh, living on uh, some uh, Chinese billionaire's yacht off of New York Harbor uh, at the time of much of this. But Mark Meadows was one heartbeat. Well, he was obviously not going to become the president. He's not the vice president. But he was the person in the White House, a most important next to the president of the United States through all this business. So we are talking about a completely different kind of prosecution than going after Steve Bannon. 
Mm. And what are you thinking also in terms of the vote that you mentioned is set to happen today? House Republican leaders are encouraging their members to vote against contempt. And you said that you're expecting it to go along party lines. I'm trying to remember if there were some party defections with regard to Steve Bannon and, you know, what what message that sends potentially if if basically House Republican, no Republicans vote uh, in favor of a contempt charge. In this particular instance, you have personal relationships also coming into play. As you said earlier, Mark Meadows was a multi-year veteran of the House himself. He was one of the two founders of the House Freedom Caucus, which has come to be uh, almost important, almost as important as the Republican leadership in determining how the votes will go in the House. Uh, they drove two speakers, John Boehner and Paul Ryan, out the door. So he was a potent figure in the House. He was not just another member from North Carolina. And for him to be cited today by the House, th that is going to be an extra added pressure on many of these Republicans. He is a person that they have known for many years and been closely associated with. So I would not expect there to be even a handful, really, of, of defections on this. There is a, an argument always to be made that uh, the House should not interfere with the White House's business, that that is uh, one branch telling another branch too much what to do. And so they always have an argument. Um, some may call it a fig leaf, but they always have an argument for opposing this particular citation for contempt. Let me go to Doug in San Jose. Hi, Doug. Hello. Um, I'm just um, amazed. I, I suppose it's a sign of um, the the fracturing of the society um, that we're we're too afraid to level the charge that I think really is what President Trump um, and his and his cohort um, uh, engaged in, and that's treason. Um, it's it's a it's a crime against the country. Um, the the whole you know the whole fear that oh the Congress can't really act against the White House, another branch of government. The the White House was attacking Congress. I mean, literally. Um, and I, I remember seeing Giuliani um, the morning of the of the um, attack. Um, oh gosh, it seemed like he was almost literally frothing at the mouth, just urging the crowd to go and do what it needed to do. Mm. Um, um, and before that, a day before that, the president. Um, reportedly, um, or at least the, the right-wing news channels reported that that uh, the president called Michael Pence uh, an enemy of the country. Um, he should be singled out when when the crowd takes over the White House, takes over the Congress. Um, so these these things really should bother all of us, and and I think that it's it, to me it's it's. It's treasonous activity. It's it's a crime against the country. Doug, thanks. I want to get your reaction, Ron Elving, just in terms of the gravity and seriousness and that it's not really getting communicated in the language that Doug would like to see. The word treason uh, in, in our national political conversation uh, is almost never heard except as a kind of... Uh, Oh, it's, a, it's, an, it's an epithet that's, that's thrown out without a great deal of seriousness unless you're talking about someone betraying the interests of the United States for the sake of a foreign power. That's the way the word has usually been used. But we do use the word insurrection. We do use the word 
coup, meaning a shortening of the French phrase coup d'etat, meaning essentially a violent overthrow of the legitimate authorities. And certainly all those terms have been used with respect to what seems to have been going on here. And and we're, we're gathering evidence. We're gathering evidence for one of the most serious accusations that's ever been made in American history against any chief executive. And, you know, Donald Trump has twice been impeached, but this this th what we are talking about now and, and, and what the, the caller rightfully wants to use the strongest possible language to describe, this is really standing alone. The, the, the second impeachment in the House uh, was directed at the president for his activities on January 6th. So in a sense, they opened Pandora's box. But whether we call it treason, insurrection, coup d'etat, clearly the president was involved with people who were willing to become violent in order to prevent the orderly and lawful procedure by which Donald Trump was being removed from office by the voters, ultimately by the voters, and then by their representatives through the Electoral College, all according to rules and regulations and laws that have been as bipartisan as anything in American history. And yet they were trying to overthrow all of that. So we can quibble about the language, but I think the facts are becoming increasingly clear. Ron Elving, a senior editor and correspondent on the Washington desk at NPR, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Frank in Mill Valley. Hi, Frank. Hi. Um, as a, a lawyer who doesn't practice con law, it seems to me that there's two foci that you, that you haven't been discussing. One is, it's my understanding that both Bannon and Meadows have filed a lawsuit to try to tangle it up in delaying um, but more importantly, as a lawyer, the legal privilege, the attorney-client privilege, does not apply when the advice is in connection with committing a crime. And the crime that we're talking about here, whether we call it treason or insurrection or coup, is a crime against the Constitution. And it seems to me that the one decision I've seen um, is a biting decision from the D.C. Circuit, which rejects his claim, uh, favoring the president's sitting president's ability to waive the privilege. Um, does, the, does your guest, I'm sorry, Ron, um, have any thoughts about whether that strand has any place in this analysis, i.e., is there a, I understand it's fairly unsettled, mm. but is there a, a place for the concept of, hey, you can't conspire to commit a crime and then assert privilege to cover it up? Frank, thanks. Yes, I, uh, yes. Excuse me. I, I, I'm just I'm leaping in here, Mina, and you need to control the time. No, no. Go right ahead, Ron. There is certainly a place for that argument, and there are multiple arguments for suggesting that what is really going on here is not a serious attempt to wriggle out on a legal basis from the responsibility to answer questions from legitimate authorities. That includes Congress. It includes the courts, and. Obviously, ultimately, it includes the American people. So they're not going to get away with this on that basis. What they're trying to do is take as much time as possible. The caller used the word delay, and absolutely that is a major motive here to keep this pushed down the road until the political situation might be different and perhaps the House would be under different management. So we know that a contempt charge and, and Bannon is supposed to have trial, I understand, on his indictment in the summer, carries with it at most a penalty of a year in jail. But just quickly, how concerned should the committee be that the, the one for Bannon doesn't seem to be inducing any further cooperation, not from Meadows and so on? 
It may in this sense. There are other people testifying. For example, today, same day, Dustin Stockton, who is a conservative activist who used to promote rallies for President Trump and has been involved with Steve Bannon off and on for a number of years, uh, is testifying before the committee. And he has brought what his lawyer describes as a trove. It's always a trove of revealing documents about what the activists who planned January 6th knew and with whom they were speaking in the White House. How high up did it go and how rough was the language about what they were prepared to do. And we're going to be very eager to hear the results of that testimony and read all of those documents down the road. Ron Elving, thank you. Ron Elving of NPR. Thank you, listeners. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.